Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will begin our discussion of the Ummah's latest leader, Muhammad ibn Harun. This Abbasid set himself apart by having his own private army, and a really good one at that. Those who have read about Roman history may already discern some parallels between this development and the formation of the Praetorian Guard. Due to the importance of these forces, it should come as no surprise that the incoming administration was far more martial than its predecessors, and utterly dominated by the new caliph's military junta. Episode 61 Al-Mu'tasim After a caliph as momentous as al-Ma'mun, it is refreshing to finally have someone new to talk about. Don't get me wrong, I greatly enjoyed learning about the guy, but his long and influential time in charge was very challenging to outline. I had to supplement our unstructured source material with more modern commentaries which helped with framing his impact. Fortunately, al-Mu'tasim is a far more accommodating subject. His reign spanned a convenient eight years. Not so short as to obscure him from history, but not that much longer either. While a lot happened during that time, most of it was in the same vein. If we wanted to, we could even cover it all today. That's not what we're going with, though. There are too many new characters for us to just rush through it. These men will all remain influential for a while, too so proper introductions should be well worth our time. Furthermore, if we zoom out a little, we'll find that the Caliphate was slowly undergoing a radical transformation, another reason to inspect these pivotal years more closely. So we'll take things slow today and focus on al-Mu'tasim, the commanders he surrounded himself with, and the Ummah's reaction to the change in management. Let's open with our usual a quick summary of the new caliph's life before he came to power. He is said to have been Harun al-Rashid's eighth son, from a Sogdian concubine named Marida, with whom the caliph went on to have at least two other children. Muhammad was born in 796 in the city of Zubatra, close to the long, mountainous border separating the Ummah and the Byzantines. It once belonged to the empire, but had been conquered by the caliphate long ago. Muhammad was six years old when Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun were publicly pledging in Mecca that they would never fight against one another, and 15 when the fighting between them first broke out. He must have started building his mercenary corps shortly afterwards. It's hard to estimate how large this force was when Al-Ma'mun arrived in Baghdad in 820, but by the time Muhammad was given his first assignment in 828, the 32-year-old could call upon two to 3,000 professional soldiers. The Arab sources refer to these men as Turks, which shouldn't imply racial uniformity, as there were many Khazars and Ushrusaniyya among their ranks. The error itself is meaningful, though, and it helps us understand how the Ummah regarded these new troops. 
So far, social and military power in the Caliphate either lay with the Arabs or the Persianate Khurasaniya, and these foreigners who surrounded Muhammad were neither. Even if they weren't ethnically identical, they shared a unity of purpose which made them similar enough for observers to lump them all into one basket. I called them masters of mounted archery last time, and while their horsemanship is often praised, only in a few instances do our sources marvel at their skills with the bow, so it seems likely that the army's various elements had different fighting styles. The Ushrusaniya were all cavalrymen, led by their prince Al-Afshin, while the Sogdians and other mercenaries reported to Muhammad's most trusted freedmen. So back to Muhammad. The caliph asked him to put down some Arab-on-Arab violence in Egypt, a task he delegated to his right-hand man, the prince of Ushrusana. Al-Afshin proved dazzlingly effective, and he spent the next few years of his career putting out fires in the province. Muhammad is mentioned prominently in Al-Ma'mun's campaign against the Byzantines, and is said to have triumphed over 30 Greek forts. It wasn't too long afterwards that the caliph fell ill, however. His half-brother Muhammad and his son Al-Abbas were both at his deathbed, and as the two most senior Abbasids in Al-Ma'mun's government, they knew that one of them was about to become the next caliph. We find some gossip about flaring tensions and thwarted ambition, but most reports say that Al-Abbas was quick to recognize his uncle's claim to power. Thus it was that in early August 833, Muhammad became the new caliph taking on the regnal title Al-Mu'tasim Billah, he who shelters in God. Upon his ascension, Al-Mu'tasim abandoned his brother's campaign against the Byzantines and returned to Baghdad to accept the pledges of its people and take control of the capital. It was kind of a waste to just leave after all the trouble and expense of setting it up, but the fight against the empire was a war of choice and there were plenty of other conflicts for the caliph's armies to attend to. Babak's revolution in Azerbaijan had entered its 20th year. There was major chaos around Basra, a Hashemite attempt in Khurasan, and Arab disquiet in Egypt. Al-Ma'mun's stretched military struggled to address these problems, but unlike his predecessor, Al-Mu'tasim knew exactly how to assemble an effective fighting machine. Now that he controlled the entire treasury, he bought as many men as he could. His overall fighting force grew from 4,000 to around 20,000, though the upper range varies a lot between different narrations. These new recruits needed training, of course, but since he'd been doing this for a while by now, the caliph already had loyal, battle-hardened lieutenants he could trust to whip them all into shape. It's not going to be easy but we should try to keep the names of Al-Mu'tasim's generals in mind without confusing them. We've already introduced Al-Mu'tasim's main guy, Al-Afshin, prince of Ushrusana. He will continue to be a key figure for a while, but eventually, all these men will become far more consequential. The only other guy you need to remember for now is Ashinas, whose lineage is unknown but presumably Turkic. Al-Mu'tasim made him governor of Egypt in his first year in charge and Ashinas only grew more powerful from then on. Al-Tabari has a cute but doubtful tale about how he got his name. It goes that one day, as a youth, he saw a man try to assault his master, 
and he rushed in yelling, Ashinas, which translates as face me in some foreign tongue, to draw the attacker's attention away. His bravery impressed Al-Mu'tasim, who referred to him as Ashinas from then on and kept him close by his side. The other three are Wasif al-Turki, Bugha al-Khazari, and Itakh al-Khazari. All three were long-time servants of the caliph, and although they weren't assigned governorships like Ashinas, they would one day rise to wield incredible power. They'll stay in the background for a few years, and for now, the spotlight will remain on Al-Afshin and Ashinas. While these five will be the most important of Al-Mu'tasim's military advisors, they were far from his only ones. He had other Turks in his retinue, as well as the forces that had been assigned to his nephew Al-Abbas. Abdullah ibn Tahir still ruled Khurasan, and his cousin governed Baghdad and was responsible for maintaining the Abna's salaries and support for the caliph in the city more generally. There were also new recruits from among the nomads of Yemen, Egypt, North and East Africa, assembled into a single army referred to as Al-Shakiriya or Al-Maghariba. Although his military was quite diverse, Al-Mu'tasim does seem to have harbored a special preference for the Sangrians, who hailed from a large but specific area east of Maru, around Fergana and Samarkand. These were the most Turkic of the bunch, and as the caliph's own men, he trusted them more than any other contingent. Military power quickly became concentrated between them, the Ushrusaniya, and the Maghariba. So that's it for Al-Mu'tasim's troops and commanders. But what about his civil administration? I know we've already covered a handful of new characters, but we only have two more names to commit to memory today. The first is Ahmad bin Abi Du'at. He was a committed Mu'tazilite, who had been both a clerk for Al-Ma'mun's chief judge and an associate of the caliphs. Al-Ma'mun advised his half-brother to keep Ibn Abi Du'at close, so the new caliph promoted him to Qadi al-Qudat, or Chief Justice. Al-Mu'tamin really took his brother's advice to heart, because he came to deeply value Ibn Abi Du'ad's opinion, and rarely ignored his guidance. One narration complains that while poets, kalam scholars, and jurists found the chief judge unimpressive, the caliph treated him like a genius who possessed a perfect understanding of all three disciplines. This seems to be a spurious, unsympathetic account, however, as Ibn Abi Du'ad proved to be a generous, peaceable, and conscientious man. He counterbalanced the caliph's explosive temper and was the driving force behind many of Al-Mu'tasim's magnificent acts of charity. Ahmad Ibn Abi Du'ad served Al-Mu'tasim as Qadi al-Qudat and close advisor throughout his reign. His adherence to the Mu'tazilite school meant that the trial of jurists and scholars started by Al-Ma'mun just a year earlier intensified during his tenure. This is the true reason behind the hostility we find directed towards him in our sources. His main legacy is as an inquisitor who censured and persecuted what eventually became orthodoxy. Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the renegade scholar who had openly railed against the Mu'tazilites, was arrested and tortured but ultimately released without having changed his stance. His unflinching defiance did wonders for Ibn Hanbal's appeal and irredeemably tarnished Ibn Abi Du'ad's reputation. 
The other administrator to remember is Muhammad ibn Zayyat. He became the caliph's secretary, treasurer, and overall vizier in quick order. Muhammad was the son of a wealthy oil merchant and was known for his learning and grammar. The story of how he and the caliph met seems fanciful, but at least it's kind of funny. See, Al-Mu'tasim already had a secretary, a man named Al-Fadl ibn Marwan, who had served him for a while. One day, a letter arrived at court, and the caliph had his secretary read it to him. The letter contained a word that the caliph didn't recognize, and when he asked Al-Fadl what it meant, Al-Fadl confessed that he had no clue. Al-Mu'tasim then fumed, What a sight we make! an illiterate caliph, and an ignorant secretary. When the pair asked those at court about the word, Ibn Zayyat came forth with a detailed explanation, impressing the caliph, who hired him on the spot. I'm pretty sure that story isn't true, but we do come across some hints here and there that the caliph's Arabic was substandard. For example, he is rarely quoted in any notable eloquence, and some of his closest associates Men like Ashinas and Al-Afshin are said to have barely spoken any Arabic at all. But Ibn Zayyat's command of the language was not the main reason he was chosen for the job. Sure, it helped him in his role as secretary, but what the caliph really needed was the right treasurer, someone comfortable dispersing and confiscating great sums of money. As the son of a wealthy businessman, Ibn Zayyat had an ease with capital that made him perfect for the role, especially considering the massive projects and expenditures this caliph had in mind. Tax records show that al-Mu'tasim's reign was as prosperous as al-Ma'mun's, so his administration's need for money had nothing to do with poverty. Rather, it was because all those soldiers he bought put a terrible strain on the treasury. The state had to bear costs for salaries, Food, housing, training, horses, equipment. It was a long, expensive list. To make sure he could meet these financial demands, the caliph had to have total and immediate control of all state revenue. He thus endowed Ibn Zayyat with extraordinary authority, so that his treasurer could keep the court well financed. Ibn Zayyat wielded his newfound influence forcefully and became a dominant member of Al-Mu'tasim's administration. He made plenty of enemies exercising this authority, and alienated many groups in the process, but at least he got the job done. Having only described al-Mu'tasim's military and civil administration, we already see clear signs of the centralization of authority within the caliphate. This trend extended further, as the caliph assigned whole provinces to his key generals, who became answerable for everything from security to tax revenue. Ashinas gives us our first example. He was appointed in charge of Egypt, but remained by the caliph's side in Iraq, training and organizing the new troops. He picked someone to govern the province on his behalf, provided the soldiers needed to maintain peace, and used its income to make sure his troops were all paid in time. As far as Al-Mu'tasim was concerned, this was an ideal arrangement which functioned perfectly well. It provided full visibility over his domain and restricted power to his coterie of loyal advisors. He was vindicated too 
because it worked great throughout his reign. But anyone can see that concentrating power to this extent only made the government more fragile. Now, any problems within that clique of elites had the potential to reverberate throughout the caliphate with devastating effects. But we can rest easy for now. Al-Mu'tasim was a commanding presence, who never faced any difficulty keeping his men in line. With him at the helm, there seemed to be no limit to what the caliphate's armies could accomplish. The earliest conflicts Al-Mu'tasim directed his attention towards were all ones he had inherited from Al-Ma'mun. The first was against the Zut, who, if you remember, I said were Indian pirates or gypsies that had rioted in Basra during the chaos of the Great Fitna. Well, there are a couple corrections to make, because I've looked into this a little more since then. The only association to the term Zut i found was the Jats, a large agricultural community which spans northern India and Pakistan. Our sources do call the Zut Indian, but I chose the terms pirate and gypsy because they came off as untrustworthy and insular in the few mentions of them found in our sources. So I don't know if they're the Jats, but I do know that the wider area around Basra was marshland, somewhat similar to that rebellious part of the Nile Delta I mentioned last time, which probably gives away where I'm going with this. Areas like these had great agrarian potential if they could be reclaimed so they often housed enslaved or otherwise abused populations to clear and irrigate them. On the other hand, those who knew how to navigate marshes could find shelter and sustenance, and in large enough numbers, they could menace the nearby urban centers. I'm not sure if that's what had happened with the Zut, but a large slave rebellion will break out in the same area in just a few decades, so it's a possibility. The few names of the Zut we come across in our sources were fully Arabized, so the Zut could have also been a large immigrant community from Sindh that had grown dissatisfied for some reason or other. Al-Ma'mun had managed to push them out of Basra, but they remained in the general area and resurfaced towards the end of his reign. To deal with them once and for all, Al-Mu'tasim sent 10,000 men led by Ujayf ibn Anbasa, a Turkic general who had led al-Abbas ibn al-Ma'mun's armies. In a substantial campaign which stretched more than 200 miles from Basra to Wasit and lasted over nine months, Ujayf systematically built dams to block every stream the Zut had used to traverse the land, trapping and driving out as many of them as possible to force the rest to turn themselves in. After a few battles and about a thousand Zut dead, the rest saw the helplessness of their situation and chose to surrender. There were 27,000 in total, 12,000 men and 15,000 women and children. They were sent to the capital, and after a few days the whole lot were marched to a fortress town on the Byzantine border. It was soon lost in a raid to the empire, and nothing further is mentioned of the Zut. It's defensible to claim that Al-Ma'mun could have accomplished the same results if he really wanted to. After all, both Ujayf and the army he used had been in his service. The fact that it didn't happen until Al-Mu'tasim was in charge shows just how much more martial his reign was. And this wasn't even his A-team. The bulk of the new recruits were still a work in progress, and the Ushrusaniya only ever followed Al-Afshin. 
These troops all stayed in Baghdad as they completed their training, and the presence of this large, armed, and foreign host quickly led to friction with the locals. The Abna resented having these new forces around and refused to share their barracks in the Harbiya district, which anyway wouldn't have fit the tens of thousands coming in from the east. Al-Tabari says that these Turks were unaccustomed to urban settings, and they rode through the city streets at full speed, trampling those who were unfortunate enough to cross their paths without stopping. Revenge attacks against them became more frequent, and the violence intensified, leading the caliph to look for a solution to this new problem. In his second or third year in charge, Al-Mu'tasim began to purchase land near an isolated monastery about a hundred kilometers upriver from Baghdad. One narration says that Harun al-Rashid had considered building a summer court on the site, but ultimately abandoned it for Raqqa, after the Syrians and Byzantines became bigger priorities for him. His son now revived the project, and he spent great sums on palaces, mosques, and gardens. It is no coincidence that this is the year he let go of his old treasurer and hired Ibn Zayyat. Such an undertaking required some creative financing, and the caliph needed a man who could make sure his vision had all the money it needed to materialize. Al-Mu'tasim's new capital would bear the name of the area it was built on, Samra, but the origin of the word has been mythologized by some bogus etymologies. Since it's somewhat well known that the city was built to house the Turkic troops, an unwanted element in Baghdad, there are those who say that Samra is a contraction of Surra or pleasing to the beholder, intended as a nicely wrapped insult. The point isn't that it was a beautiful city, as the phrase would suggest, but that it was pleasing to behold that the Turks now had their own city and would no longer bother the Arabs. Others say the original phrase was Sa'amanra'a, or displeasing to the beholder, a less creative dig at the Turks. But bad wordplay aside, Thamarra will go on to serve as Abbasid capital for over three decades, and in that short period alone, it will mushroom in size and become one of the biggest Islamic cities the world had ever known. Despite this success, there's no consensus on whether this site was a good choice or not. After all, it withered away quite steadily after it was abandoned by the central government, a fate which never befell Baghdad. Not even the great fitna could break up Al-Mansur city. But perhaps we're comparing apples to oranges. Samarra was a new capital, but it was intended to house the troops. Like a canton city, only royal, because the caliph would be there too. All the big names had districts for their troops, Al-Afshin, Ashinas, Ojaif, and the other military leaders. The Maghariba were based there, and there was room for the Abna as well, though most of them ultimately stayed in Baghdad. Overall, Thamirra was an effective solution to Al-Muqtasim's problems. Not only did it minimize contact between the Ummah and the Turks, but it also gave the caliph a cheap way of rewarding his men with land grants in the new city. Markets soon sprung up to support all the folks living there, and those too were apportioned among the various leaders, giving each a cut of the profits they could use to pay their men and further the growth of the fledgling capital. 
although it worked out practically. Abandoning Baghdad for a city dominated by Turks hurt al-Muqtasim's reputation among the Arabs. While we only come across some snide remarks about the Turks before Samarra, the Ummah's jealousy hardened into resentment soon after the Caliph moved his court. Things remained quiet for a few years, however, as there weren't many opportunities for conflict with the Caliph and his men squirreled away in Samarra. But in 838, Al-Mu'tasim decided to lead a massive army against the Byzantines in response to a brutal assault they had carried out earlier that year. It was during that campaign that we first hear of dissatisfaction from generals who weren't in the caliph's inner circle, those who had served under Al-Ma'mun and remembered a time before the army was dominated by Al-Mu'tasim's servants and freedmen. These guys weren't just being spiteful. The caliph treated his men way better than the rest, so their animosity wasn't unfounded. Ujayf ibn Anbasa was one of those disaffected leaders, and he thought he could find a way to fix things, for himself and the ummah. The Byzantine campaign didn't just spark the fire of discontent, it also presented the opportunity to do something about it. Not only was Al-Mu'tasim out of his impregnable capital, but for the first time since his ascension, his nephew, Al-Abbas ibn al-Ma'mun, was at the scene. Al-Abbas's political potency had led the caliph to completely remove him from power after taking the throne. The only reason he was around for the campaign was because Al-Mu'tasim wanted absolutely all hands on deck for it. Anyway, Ujayf had a very close relationship to Al-Abbas as he used to serve him as a mentor of sorts back in the day. He convinced the son of Al-Ma'mun that it had been a mistake to submit to his uncle without a fight, and that he now had a rare opportunity to right that wrong. Ujayf went about obtaining secret pledges from other like-minded commanders. There were quite a few of them around, and they agreed this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance that they simply had to take. Since they stood no chance in a fight against the Turks, their intentions were to assassinate Al-Mu'tasim and immediately declare their support for Al-Abbas, giving the caliph's loyal servants no option but to submit. The plan may have worked if it wasn't for Ashinas, who kept a watchful eye over friend and foe alike, and discovered some of the conspirators by accident. The plot quickly unraveled as they gave each other up under duress, and what followed was a widespread purge of the army, which included Ujayf and Al-Abbas. The reaction to this conspiracy against Al-Mu'tasim emptied the military leadership of whatever Arab and Khurasani elements it had, leaving the Turks more in control than ever before. This, in turn, led to more movements protesting their influence, which only reinforced the same trend. For example, in Egypt, the Arab forces rose up to demand more of a say in their province, and Ashinas responded by treating them like terrorists. He removed all their names from the payroll and fought them until they surrendered. The final Arab rebellion against Al-Mu'tasim's Turks came towards the end of his reign, and it reveals just how dominant they had become by then. A Turk is said to have whipped an Arab woman who objected to his staying at her home while her husband was away. Upon seeing his battered wife, 
the man swore to take revenge on the soldier who had beat her. He found and killed the man, then went into hiding. But his tale attracted many to his side, and within a year or so he was at the center of a full-on rebellion in Palestine, with great support from the Arab tribes roaming the Syrian desert. It was eventually put out by one of al-Mu'tasim's professional armies, and although it was never a real threat to the caliphate, it underlines just how wide the gulf had grown between the state and the people who had founded it all those years ago. The Abbasid revolution had done away with the Arab monopoly on power. Its conductors cleverly exploited Khurasani grievances and the caliphate's many social fault lines to forge a new balance. While they retained much of the Khurasani military which brought them to primacy, they actively established new alliances with many Arab tribes as well. The masters of this act were al-Mansur and to a lesser extent al-Mahdi, but things began to go awry after that. Harun al-Rashid didn't really mess up too badly when he was in charge, but his succession plan was certifiably insane, as it almost purposely tore the caliphate asunder. A few years after the great fitna, al-Ma'mun did try to rebuild ties with other parts of his ummah in order to counterbalance his reliance on the Tahirids for troops, and he met with some modest success. Now that al-Mu'tasim was in charge, though, there would be no balancing anymore. He trusted his Turks like nobody else and saw no logic in hedging his bets. It wasn't a popular choice by any means, but it paid off handsomely, as they proved to be the best warriors around and utterly devoted to the caliph who loved them so deeply. Join me next time so we can go through their many triumphs together. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>